Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Philip Kavanagh. He is an Associate Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at the Institute for Social Neuroscience and Adjunct Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of South Australia. Dr. Kavanagh lectures across both the undergraduate and postgraduate psychology programs, provides research supervision to honors, masters and PhD students, and clinical supervision to students in the clinical program. And basically today we're going to talk about evolutionary psychology and clinical psychology and the intersection between them, which we could call probably evolutionary clinical psychology. And so Dr. Kavanagh, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let's start with that. Uh, what is really the relationship that we can establish between evolutionary psychology and clinical psychology? I mean, in what ways can the knowledge that comes from evolutionary psychology help us to, uh, to better understand how certain mental conditions uh, function in our brains and perhaps to better develop a clinical psychology. Well, the all of the premises for you know the background for, for evolutionary psychology is understanding the the causal mechanisms for our um, cognitive processes, how we perceive things, um, how we understand what's going on around us, how we select our relationships, intimate relationships, friendships, uh, how we invest in those those relationships, how we avoid certain relationships. And so, you know, the whole idea of, of evolutionary psychology is understanding those causal mechanisms. Now, in terms of clinical psychology, I mean, clinical psychology is the applied part of abnormal psychology. In order to understand what is abnormal, we need to understand, well, we need to define abnormal, and then we need to define and understand what normal is. And so, uh, when you go to do interventions within clinical psychology, you're looking at the causal mechanisms that's caused the distress and the problems. So that's that's a parallel to you know evolutionary psychology trying to understand the normal inverted commas you know because there's a range of normality, uh, normal processes and those causal mechanisms and how we perceive things and understand things. And then if we understand how those mechanisms work in a normal kind of a process, then we can better understand how when they're dysfunctional or not working so well for someone or causing them distress. It could be, you know, potentially raised for intervention that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, when taking into account an evolutionary perspective, particularly not not only an evolutionary perspective, but particularly that, uh, isn't it a bit difficult to decide how to classify something that happens in our minds as a mental disorder, a mental pathology, a mental disease, or any other term like that? Uh, because, I mean, uh, there are certain things, and particularly coming from disciplines like evolutionary psychiatry and probably also evolutionary clinical psychology, where it seems that certain conditions that we nowadays classify as diseases because they really, uh, they really take a toll on people's mental lives and mental condition, uh, they might have evolved as 
adaptations or at least as byproducts of adaptations that might have played an important role in our evolutionary history, at least in certain situations. But perhaps nowadays we have sort of an evolutionary mismatch and so the environments where we live are no longer the ones where they would allow us to function properly, let's say. Yeah, so I mean, in terms of classifying these things as a mental disease or a disorder, um, I mean, there, there is a bit of a, a disconnect between evolutionary psychology and clinical psychology. So, you know, the language for the clinical psychology is, um, you know, they'll say that it's, it's, it's not adaptive or it's dysfunctional, um, which is not the same that we mean in evolutionary psychology. So, you know, within evolutionary psych, uh, it's, you know, it's maladaptive if it doesn't serve a purpose. I mean, if it allows you to survive and reproduce, you know, the, the basic kind of parts of evolutionary theory, then you can consider it to be adaptive. You know, and, uh, a good example of that is things like um, aggression. You know, uh, it's, it's considered antisocial in a lot of situations. Um, and from a clinical perspective, people might say that it's, it's maladaptive. Uh, but from an evolutionary perspective, in, in some aspects, it's adaptive. Um, and if you think about trying to survive, I mean, being aggressive and surviving um, versus being aggressive and, and not surviving, you know, not being aggressive and not surviving, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, that, that kind of makes sense. Uh, in terms of kind of classifying them, though, I mean, it, I think it's probably at the level of dysfunctionality. So if, even if it is an evolved mechanism, so anxiety is a really good example. I mean, uh, it's useful. It keeps us alive, it keeps us alert, um, it helps us scan our environment for threats. But when it becomes hypersensitive um, and the perception of, so, you know, our anxiety systems, our fear systems can be triggered by perceptions of threat. Now, that threat may or may not be real. Uh, and if it's not real, kind of misperceived stuff, and it's causing this dysfunctionality, so we're exceptionally anxious and fearful in situations where we're not required to be fearful and anxious to keep us alive, then you would say that that's kind of a, a level of dysfunctionality with things. Um, likewise, some of the, um, uh, the theoretical stuff that's coming out about depression and the idea that, you know, to some extent at a, at a mild end, um, you know, depression could be thought of as a way of kind of withdrawing and regrouping when there's a lack of resources, um, you know, the, the work around the idea of inflammation and, yeah, so people have high levels of inflammation with depression and they've accidentally found that when people give them anti-inflammatories, their depression lifts. Uh, and there's some ideas that, well, if you're slightly inflamed due to some kind of um, toxin or virus, then you're lacking energy to do the things that you need to do. You're better to just sit down, withdraw a little bit, recover, conserve your energy, and then once you recover, get out there. But it could be that depression is a, uh, in modern day depression is a, uh, an exacerbation of kind of those earlier aspects. So you can see that, you know, the classification would be more about the dysfunctionality of it in terms of is it causing someone distress. Um, it, it is a bit of a, a difficult one to kind of work out and, 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 and categorize, I guess. Uh, and typically, too, I mean, most pathology, you know, descriptions of pathology or psychopathology. Um, it comes from a medical model, a disease model, you know, you either have it or you don't. It's a, it's a dichotomous process. You know, the ICD-10 or the ICD-11, which is coming out shortly, 
uh, the DSM-5, the, the categorical classification systems, and you have so many criteria, and you meet the criteria for the disorder, and, and then you either or you don't, similar to you know, medical um, problems as well. You, know, you either have the disease or the virus, or you don't. Whereas with an evolutionary kind of perspective, it's, well, we don't know whether it's adapted, you know, we don't know whether something is, a, is an adaptation, whether it's an adaptive response until after the fact, not before the fact, because you don't know whether it's going to be helpful until it's, it's, it's happened. Mm -hmm. So one is kind of before and one is after, and it comes down to that level of dysfunctionality, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, but th there's still that element always present of uh, evolutionary mismatch, right? Be because yeah. probably certain things, certain mental mechanisms or phenomena that operate on our mind, in our minds, and that previously in our evolutionary history might yeah. have played an important role. It's simply that probably in our modern modern environments we are not really able to properly express them. And that's the way by which they cause uh, they cause us uh, they make us to to be dysfunctional and causes distress, right? Yeah, yeah, and and actually, social anxiety disorder is a good example of that. I mean, the whole idea of a social anxiety disorder is being anxious that when you're in, in social situations that people are judging you and perceiving you know negative having negative perceptions about you. So. There's a social judgment. It's around people that you don't know. People with social anxiety disorder most often can go and, and tolerate social situations with a friend or a you know a close friend or family member. They can they can do small groups, two to three people. Um, and you know if you go back I don't know ten thousand years, it would have been reasonably adapted adaptive to be anxious or weary of, of of strangers. And now we go to malls trains, trams, <laughs> public transport, airports, where you're completely surrounded by strangers. And a lot of people do this on a, on a daily basis, and they're not scared. Whereas, you know, like I said, say 10,000 years ago, you would have been right to be scared because you don't know what's going to happen. Uh, and so that, that's, a, that's a, a kind of an easy example of a mismatch between, well, it's now a disorder to be anxious in those social situations, whereas it probably would have kept you alive a long time ago. And that's very interesting because uh, now that you refer to that example of people walking around constantly in contact with people that they don't know, that are anonymous and strangers to them, uh, I mean, wouldn't it be, uh, shouldn't we expect perhaps that even the levels of mental disorders that we have in modern societies to be even higher than that because i mean people constantly living in in an environment that they were not uh, evolutionarily adapted to i mean perhaps we we focus a lot on the fact that we have really uh, high prevalence and incidence of certain mental disorders, but perhaps from that perspective, uh, at least some of them are are low <laughs> because I, I I mean it's it's really amazing how people can deal with these sorts of novel information and environments without breaking down even further, right? Well, yeah, and 
But I mean, that, that's, that's the amazing thing about the human mind is that it's plastic and it's adaptive. So, you know, over, over the thousands of years that we've started to move towards kind of larger populations and cities and living with you know, millions of people around us, um, people that have survived have managed to be able to cope with that stuff. And then they've had kids that have managed to cope with that stuff. And we know that, you know, especially for things like anxiety, there, there's a, a reasonable heritable component there. And we know there's personality components that are associated with that as well. So, you know, higher levels of neuroticism are often associated with higher rates of experiencing anxiety and anxiety and developing anxiety disorders. So if you've got history, you know, your family histories where they've managed to kind of navigate those environments and, and be okay, there's a good chance that offspring are going to be okay and, and likewise. Whereas if you've got family members who have higher rates of anxiety disorders, um, maybe slightly neurotic, you've got that shared environment, um, they're a bit more wary about strangers, then they might end up developing, you know, anxiety disorders or, or social anxiety in those situations as well. Um, but I think, you know, it's, we have this plasticity, we can adapt. I mean, that's that's why we managed to kind of conquer every corner of, well, not that the world is square, but every, every aspect of the world. You know, there's not a part of, of the world where we haven't been able to live in different types of societies and, and interact with different people. Um, but there probably is some deep-rooted mismatch somewhere along the line with, you know, what our early know, social engagement, cognitive mechanisms were for, um, and then they're kind of, you know, potentially being overloaded now by the amount of information that we're getting you know, on a daily basis, potential threats. Now, even just walking around a large city, um, you know, the amount of strangers that there are, the amount of, you know, dark corners or, um, you know, uh, traffic and, and, and everything else that happens, there's, this, there's a constant, you know, stimulus overload. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, th there are lots and lots of things in our modern environments that really are very far apart from what we were exposed to during most of our evolutionary history. Like, for example, we tended to live in groups of up to 150 people uh, and we knew all of them and interacted with all of them uh, and we lived in natural, open environments. Uh, and we also, uh, I, I mean, even the technology we deal with and the information we deal with nowadays, we have to learn lots of things in school that uh, weren't really that useful to us during our evolutionary history and particular, particularly things like maths and science and reading and writing. I mean, it's also to be expected that people would have at least some difficulty in, in dealing with those kinds of things and learning them because our brains are not really predisposed to deal with these sorts of, envi of environments and acquire these sorts of information, correct? Yeah, and that's uh, the, the things are, are a lot different than when you know we first started um, interacting. And uh, another one, kind of thinking what you were, you were talking there was um, say like uh, sleep wake disorders as well. So you know we're talking about uh, technology. I mean, I'm sitting here with a bright light on my face so that you can see, but we know that you know bright lights and screen time um, disrupts our circadian rhythms. You know, and yeah, and changing our sleep-wake cycles 
um, just it affects mood and all sorts of things. And you know, our circadian rhythm is so tied to just the environment. You know, sleeping when the sun goes down and waking when the sun comes up, uh, and uh, you know, it's things like well, it used to be called seasonal affective disorder, but you know, major depressive disorder with seasonal patterns. Um, is, is tied to the environmental aspects, um, even uh, disorders, complex disorders like bipolar disorder. There's a suggestion that um, sometimes they're a bit more hypersensitive to circadian rhythm um, changes. So when there's a decrease in sleep or if they do a long-haul flight and experience jet lag, it's, it's more likely to push someone into experiencing a manic or a hypermanic episode. And that's all tied back to you know, a sleep-wake cycle. Yeah, so modern technology in the environments and influence those things, you know, pretty dramatically. Uh, yet we evolved to kind of, like I said, you know, sleep under the stars and go to sleep when it was dark. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I mean, apart from that, there are also uh, aspects of technology that we can use nowadays to try to avoid dealing with certain issues like for example since nowadays we have access to social media and online games and things like yeah. that i mean it's very easy for people to suffer for example from social anxiety anxiety to to try to close themselves in their bedrooms or in their houses or something like that and to and to just try to live in a closed space where they can sort of simulate uh, social interaction with other people in some way or another, correct? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, things like agoraphobia, um, it's possible now to order your groceries online, to buy all your clothes online. Um, you, you don't need to leave the house. In fact, you can, just, you, you can even work from home with the internet. Uh, so you never get a chance to expose yourself to the outside environment and realize that actually it's not as dangerous and it's not as trapping as what people agoraphobia often think or feel. And one of the, the therapies for things like agoraphobia is, is exposure work and helping people you know, regain um, their ability to, to be in those environments and help them downregulate their anxiety. If they're stuck in a house, they never get a chance to experience that. So they don't get out, whereas before, I mean, while you know, agoraphobia has been around for it's been around for a long time, but you would have been more forced to get out and do stuff. I mean, it's much easier now to hide. And even now, when you're saying that technology, um, you know, the ability um, to just kind of distract yourself and not get involved with with things if you're distressed, just avoid social media. You know, um, and uh, the research around. Um, uh, people seeing everybody's nice lives on social media and then an impacting on their mood and thinking, well, their life's not that great. It's a it's a perception of, you know, they're making a comparison between their life and someone else's life, but what they're seeing is not real. However, a normal kind of information processing aspect would have been, well, our frame of reference, you know, if you think about things like sociometer theory and the idea of, you know, being accepted and your value, well, I'm not as valuable, you know, I'm not uh, not as included or accepted as what every, you know, everyone else on social media is. So where does that leave me? So my value drops um, and that can push someone into experiencing depression. But we know that the stuff on social media isn't real. And that's kind of the best shots of everybody. It's the filtered stuff. It's the, it's the great holidays. Um, but if people are going to start doing those comparisons, it's going to affect their mental health as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, and I mean, I guess that one thing that people have to take into account is that, uh, of course, we have these sort of biological predispositions to acquire or develop certain mental and cognitive and emotional capacities during our development, of course, but, but we really need to have inputs of information related to each specific mental module, let's say, for, for it to develop properly. And so people can't really substitute um, proper uh, social interaction, face-to-face -face interaction and things like that with virtual interaction where they probably most of the time don't even have access to the other person's uh, facial expressions and tone of voice and non-verbal aspects of interaction and things like that, correct? Yeah, yeah. It, it makes it really difficult with, well, our whole perceptual system and, and, and getting to know people, I mean, it's, as well as the facial interactions and tone of voice, there's also just subtle cues like, you know, body odour, if you think about mating um, and attraction and those sorts of things, and you're missing that stuff. You just don't get it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, clinical psychology specifically and clinical approaches, because I guess that, I mean, we have several different approaches to clinical issues, and I, I'm not sure if you, we could call them different schools, but anyway, yeah. anyway, we have the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic approach, the cognitive behavioral approach, uh, family couple therapy, sexual therapy, the humanistic slash existential approach. So, I mean, is there any common thread among them that we could use and that perhaps we could gather some information from evolutionary psychology to try to unify them all? Or, I mean, is, or, or is it really relevant for us to have these different approaches, but perhaps apply them to different mental conditions where they really are uh, useful, let's say? Uh, okay, so that's, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, so, I mean, if we just start with kind of the different theoretical approaches, I mean, a lot of those different schools um, of thought were attempts at trying to understand normality and abnormality and what the causal mechanisms were mm -hmm. in terms of causing people to stress. So if we start with, you know, psychodynamic is the first on the list. I mean, Freud was actually heavily influenced by Darwin and the idea of the, the you know, ego and the superego um, came from survival and reproduction, those those drives to survive and reproduce. So that's where he, you know, he came up with his early theories. Um, ultimately, though, he was trying to understand um, what was causing people distress. Mm -hmm. And so... His theory was around, you know, um, there were unresolved issues and then they were getting um, what was pathology was attempts at managing anxiety. And then what came out was kind of things that didn't work out well, you know, repressed images or slips of the tongue. And if you, you look at other schools of thought as well, you know, cognitive approaches or behavioral approaches or 
you know, so the cognitive approaches, it's where there's a there's a problem with information processing, or there's some perceptual disturbances, or people are misunderstanding what's happening. Cognitive distortions, you know, so they're um, look they've got cognitive biases in terms of the way they're understanding things, and that approach is well the causal, you know, they're saying that the causal mechanism for pathology is that there's a problem with you know perceptual disturbance, you know, thought processes. Behaviorists, it's a problem with the environment and interacting with the environment and stimulus response and you know classical operant conditioning. Um, and even with couples and family therapy, the, a lot of the, the family therapies are a systems approaches. So there's something wrong with the system that's causing the problem. Uh, I mean, the key part of all of those approaches is that they're trying to determine the causal mechanisms that lead to experiencing psychopathology. And then what they're doing is they're that's their point of intervention is okay this is the part in the, in, in the causal chain this part of the mechanism here that's not working so that's what we're going to address in therapy if you think about that that's the common thread and i think that's the commonality too with evolutionary psychology is what are the causal mechanisms and then how does that manifest itself in terms of our behaviors our cognitions um, our interactions with others and yeah, that's where you can use the I think you can use the evolutionary approach um, and merge it with some of these other therapies. I mean, I don't know if it'll ever become a unified. I mean, I like to think there's going to be a unified approach. I mean, Beck recently um, suggested kind of a unified uh, approach to depression, where he included evolutionary psychology as part of the the, the theory. Um, but sometimes they come from completely different background in terms of thoughts. I mean. Behaviorists, there's not many behaviorists around these days, but nothing nothing existed inside the black box, which was your mind. It was all the environment. Um, and, you know, cognitivists were a reaction to the behaviorists. So I, I don't know if we can unify it from that kind of a perspective. And the cognitives were a reaction and the behaviorists to the psychodynamic and psychoanalytic. Um, so I don't know about kind of pulling them all together, but I think the common thread is, is trying to attempt to understand the causal mechanisms and how they play out and manifest in what we call mental health disorders or psychopathology or some kind of functional interpersonal distress. Mm -hmm. Yes, I also ask you that because I guess that not only from a clinical perspective, but pr probably mostly from a scientific perspective, one of the criticisms that is put forth uh, when it comes to clinical psychology is that people say that it doesn't really have uh, any core theory that is common to all yeah. approaches, right? That can be a problem. And, it, and even, um, you know, the, the disagreement around classification systems and how things get classified and diagnosed. Uh, I mean, every time there's another version of the DSM that comes out, um, you get people supporting and not supporting, and then it, it leads to more research. I mean, at, at the very least, though, it is leading to more research and people developing models and testing models. So the scientific process is happening. Um, the, the thing, though, I mean, you know, psychology is a relatively young science um, compared to some of the older science. You know, when you think about physics and chemistry and biology, they, they've been around for much longer and um, it's just gonna, I think it's going to take time for 
clinical psychology to start integrating some of these other things. Uh, and one of the things that I've noticed over the years, I mean, I, I started my research here in personality and social psychology within a kind of evolutionary framework. And then every time I go and prepare for a lecture in clinical psychology, I, I come across something, oh, well, actually, it's strange because they, they discovered that, well, they knew about that in social psychology 10 years ago. How come we're only just finding it now in, in clinical psychology? Um, and I think part of it too is the applied nature of it because it's the application, whereas a lot of other branches of psychology are theoretical and they're not applying things. So there's always a delay when you've got theory and then application. Um, it's, the, it's the same with, with the other sciences as well. Um, and I, I think eventually it'll catch up but it's just going to take time. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, perhaps sometimes it's also the case that uh, things coming from academia, they are not straightforwardly applied in a clinical context. Like, for example, I, I've had Dr. Robert Plomin on the show and he's one of the most prominent figures in behavioral genetics. And I mean, from behavioral genetics, we know that... Uh, probably most conditions have at least to some extent a genetic basis to them. But I mean, even if we know that, if we have that knowledge, and even if we were to identify the complete set of genes associated with each condition, I mean, uh, how would we apply that in a clinical context directly? Yes. I mean, w would would we be doing a genetic profiling or something like that? And and how? Uh, right, that, that's a bit yeah. difficult, right? Yeah, and then that's 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 part of the thing with with if, with clinical psychology as well. So even if we just take you know one of the mainstreams, um, you know, the cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, which is based on the idea that you know there, there's cognitive distortions. There's very there's individual differences and variations. So even applying the basic, okay, well there's a thinking error going on, that gets adapted and modified and changed for each person, and it's not the same. You know, one person um, will have their own versions of thoughts, and so it, it's not so much of a easy switch on and switch off um, aspect. There's a there's a degree of like, well, individual differences and in how these things get applied. Um, so that variation adds to the problem as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, and even the fact that perhaps uh, in in a clinical context, professionals have to rely a lot on people's reports. And I mean, yeah. people forget things. People think think that some things are important and they don't care to yeah. mention others. And perhaps it's a bit difficult for most people even to talk about what happens in their minds and things like that. So, I mean, it's a very in, indirect approach, right? It is a very indirect approach. You can only, you can only do what you can do based on the information that you're given. And if, if it's largely self-report, even if it's family member or a significant other report, there's still gonna be a degree of kind of subjectivity in, in what they're telling you. Um, and if they can't access their thoughts, um, or they're not aware of what's going on around them, I mean, and people have varying degrees of insight as well. Uh, you know, the classic example, you know, someone gets recorded and then they, they see themselves in a video or hear the audio, is that me? Do I sound like that? 
for you. That's, oh, wow, I didn't realize. And this is the basic process of things that we do on a day-to-day basis, let alone the thoughts that go on in our head and how we express those things. Um, so, yeah, that, there's that degree of subjectivity. And, and there's no kind of you can just do a blood test and find out whether someone's got depression and what type of depression it is and the extent to what it is. Or you can do a blood test or a, a DNA test and go, yeah, they've got an anxiety disorder and we can just kind of fix it this way. Um, it's it's one of those things where there's a degree of, um, I mean, well, there's the variability and how it gets expressed. Um, and people with depression, some people will be grumpy, some people will be sad, some people will be tearful, some people will eat too much, some people won't eat enough, some people will lose sleep, some people will sleep too much. Um, and But it's all called depression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's that's where I think um, having a unified approach and applying it is good. Hopefully we get there at some point, um, but I think it's going to be a while. I think evolutionary psychology has, has a, has a, can lead that in terms of having that framework to you know, help them to identify those causal mechanisms is to say you know, maybe this is why some people lose their appetite and why some people have an appetite. Um, that could be uh, one of the things that could be investigated. Um, at this stage, it's not happening. So mm-hmm. we'll get it. right. So, and I mean, evolutionary psychology. I guess that it's also a very useful approach, even to the other branches of psychology, because it yeah. really allows for us to have uh, to establish a continuity between biology and mental phenomena. Right. Yeah. I mean, you you, you can't separate out. Um, the, the whole kind of nature nurture, and that, that's I get annoyed when I see that in, in undergraduate textbooks still. But from <laughs> uh, from from the time that we are conceived, it, it's both. You know, um, we know that in terms of our individual differences and our personality, and it's the same for any mental health problems anyone has. You know, e- even you know uh, ones where we know there are high heritability things like schizophrenia. You can get twins that have the same brain abnormalities in terms of their brain structures, and one might develop schizophrenia and the other won't. And it could be because one had um, some kind of additional insult to their heads, or maybe they had a drug, or maybe they had a head injury, or they went through a really stressful life experience, and it was enough just to push them over the edge to start developing psychosis. Um, So it's not a uh, you know, there's no kind of genetic determinism there. It's always an interaction with the environment. Now, I guess that's the difficulty too in terms of thinking about um, uh, clinical psychology from the pathological side of things as well. What are those unique environmental things that may also you know, contribute to, to pushing someone into developing a, a problem? And likewise, flipping it around, the resilience. I mean, there are bunches of people that, that don't experience mental health problems. So what is it about the uh, way they're interacting with the environment or the environment itself or their individual differences that causes them to maintain mental health? Mm-hmm. Right. So just before we move to the next topic, let me just go back for a moment 
uh, to, the, to the issue about relying on people's reports in a clinical context, because I mean, at a certain point there, you refer to the fact that some people are more insightful and others less insightful. But I mean, even if people were to have uh, an intellectual background in psychology and things like that, I mean, it, it, we couldn't also rely that much on their reports because particularly very intelligent people could also use that information to sort of rationalize their behavior and what's happening in their mental lives, right? Um, yeah, to some extent, I, mean, I guess that's where the art comes in with, with clinical psychology. I mean, a skilled clinical psychologist um, or psychiatrist will be able to pick up that someone's kind of rationalizing or intellectualizing what's going on. Um, so they're, 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 there's kind of an art form to it. To what, I think it comes back to experiential stuff. So the more that you've, the more clients someone has seen, the more experience they've had, the more likely they're going to pick up on um, uh, someone sitting in front of them. Not quite, things don't quite add up with how they're presenting and what they're saying. Um, but the degree of insight can also just be tied somewhat to kind of um, intellectual capacity. You know, if someone is uh, doesn't have the ability to to reflect or self-reflect, um, or some people, you know, we know there's individual differences and in, in things like empathy. So, you know, people high on levels of psychopathy have less levels of empathy. Uh, people at higher levels of narcissism like to manipulate people a bit more, a bit more grandiose. Um, it's going to change their self-reports. Uh, and you know, it's it's so part of that insight is if they have enough insight to be able to manipulate it or whether they don't even have the insight to be able to express what's going on for them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me now ask you about a paper that you published last year in Frontiers in Psychology that is titled uh, Are Expectations the Missing Link Between Life History Strategies and Psychopathology? Because you you refer to an, a very interesting aspect there and i'm going to quote you now and ask you to explain it so despite advances in knowledge and thinking about using life history theory to explain psychopathology there is still a missing link that is we all have a life history strategy but not all of us develop mental health problems we propose that the missing link is expectations a mismatch between expected environmental conditions, including social, set by variations in life history strategies, and the current environmental conditions. So could you explain that part? The, uh, I mean, perhaps first, what life history theory is about, and then what are you specifically referring to here when you mention expectations? Okay. So in life history theory at its core, it's a behavioral ecology theory that came from evolutionary psychology. Um, and it was developed to explain variations um, across species um, in terms of the morbidity, mortality, and how that was related to the number of offspring that they produced and the amount of energy that they, or resources they invested in those offspring. Um, at, the, at the basic level it's well, if there's a high chance of um, you or your offspring um, dying early, um, it's the the most 
uh, or fitness maximizing kind of strategy is to have a lot of offspring and then just kind of hope by numbers only that some of them survive. But as part of that too, you know, because you know, all organisms want to survive and reproduce, um, it's well, if there's a high chance of, of, of death due to, you know, infection, virus, predation, uh, you need to get to that developmental trajectory through that developmental trajectory quickly to a reproductive age and then reproduce. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the faster end of the spectrum. Uh, and, you know, you see that in um, species, you know, like um, rabbits, rats, you know, they have a quick life cycle, they produce a lot of, of offspring, and then their reproductive age pretty quickly, and then they reproduce again. I mean, it, it's, it, you think of it from that kind of a perspective. At the other ends, where you've got the slower strategy species, uh, it's they invest more heavily in um, their offspring, there'll be lots, uh, they'll have fewer offspring, there'll be a greater spacing in between the offspring, and the offspring will have a slower developmental trajectory. So a good example of that is things like elephants, or even more recently, a couple of years ago, um, uh, the Greenland shark, which apparently doesn't reach puberty until about 120 or 125 or something, which is, that's, that's a long, long time to reach puberty. But um, a lot of it, yeah, it's, it's the environmental pressure in terms of what are the chances of survival and reproducing passing on. Now, life history theory was then brought into psychology with evolutionary psychology. So, well, there's across species differences. Are there within species differences? So is it the case that early environment, uh, early environmental pressures, is that going to push people um, to developing earlier? Are they going to... Um, if there's a higher risk of mortality uh, and morbidity, are, are they going to get pushed into an earlier developmental window, go through puberty earlier, reproduce earlier, invest uh, less than their offspring, similar to you see, similar that you see in, in other species, you know, the cross species differences. And at the other end, the slower, slower end of the spectrum, you know, people have kind of a stable environment, there's less chance of them, you know, them dying. Um, due to disease or, or conflict or anything else that's going on? Do they tend to have, invest more in their children? Do those children or those offspring develop slightly later uh, and you know, have more of a future-oriented focus? And that's where life history theory and life history strategies have been, been incorporating kind of humans as a species. So that's the, that's the strategy side of things. Um, so we all have a lot... Well, we all have a life history strategy, you know, species. It's just one of those things. Um, one of the things that I realized over a number of years with my clients is I started to go, I started to kind of repeat myself. I felt I was saying, what do you expect? So the, the report on something that happened, an interaction, or a way they perceived something. And over a period of a couple of years, it was, there's a mismatch between what, these people are expecting in their mind or from their behaviours and then the environment and then either their expectations aren't being met and it's causing them distress or others aren't behaving in a way that they want them to, to that they're expecting and it's causing them distress or um, there's, there's something, there's a mismatch, there's a gap there. Uh, and what I was wondering was well, we all have a life history strategy, 
is it that the life history strategy that sets up our, set by our early environment? So you imagine that you grow up in an environment where there is a, a good chance that you're going to die early. Um, maybe it's unstable, there's um, warfare, um, people dying around you, or a lot of illness, a lot of poverty. Uh, it might be that, well, you get pushed into an early developmental trajectory so you can actually reproduce. Now, if you're in that environment and then you are lifted out and put in an environment where it is stable, your early environment would be, well, foreshortened sense of future. There's no point in doing long-term planning. I'm, I'm, I'm here now to survive. So building long-term relations, this isn't going to be a large focus for you. It's going to be getting your immediate needs met because you need your immediate needs met. You need to eat. You need to survive. And you're going to be a bit more directive and a bit more forceful about doing that. You don't need to do that in an environment where it's stable and there's not a chance of, there's reduced chance of, of you not you know, surviving. So if you have that strategy of a foresaught and sense of future and just getting your needs met at any cost and you then are embedded in an environment where you don't need to behave like that, the people in that environment are going to start pushing back and you're going to start experiencing distress because you're treating people in a not very nice way and they're pushing back. Similarly, if you took someone from the star environment where they did have long-term planning uh, and uh, they, they didn't manipulate people just to get their needs met and they, they spent time building long-term relationships and they put them in an environment where well, everyone's out for themselves because they have to be, otherwise they're going to die. Uh, that's going to cause them distress as well because their script, their, their early script and, and way of interacting with people and perceiving the environment and understanding, there's a mismatch between the two. So I guess what I was wondering, um, and, and we're trying to test that at the moment, is is that the cause plus kind of a lack of plasticity and, and adaptability to those environments that's causing that pushes people into experiencing psychopathology and there's various manifestations. Um, because you see people who experience depression and they have a slow life history strategy and you see people experience depression and they have a fast life history strategy, but there's people that have a fast life history strategy that never experience a mental health problem. Likewise, slow strategy, slow strategists as well don't experience mental health problems. So there's kind of a, a speculation around that. Um, you know, and the environmental conditions could be the physical environment, they could be the social environment, and your perceptions of what you're expecting are going to happen. Um, and I, I think I used in the um, in, in that paper the analogy. Um, there's some research around just simple things, like even like um, sunflowers. So the idea that sunflowers flowers follow the sun, and it seems like uh, apparently some poor postdoc or PhD student had the job of rotating a whole of sunflowers for six months. Um, and the, the cells grow at different rates during different times of the day. Mm -hmm. And they turn them around 50 degree, uh, 180 degrees, and those the ones that they turned around 180 degrees, because they weren't bent over to where the sun was supposed to be coming up in the east and setting in the west, they kind of failed to thrive to the same extent as the ones that didn't. And you can think of that as just a simple, the cellular level and expectation of where the sun's going to be because the cells 
grow at different rates during different times of the day to follow the sun to make the most of the nutrients from the sun. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it happens at the cellular level with plants, we're, we're made of cell, I mean, we're a lot more complex than, than sunflowers, but yeah, and even things like circadian rhythms, you know, um, your body clock is, is set by the sun rising and the sun setting. And one of the problems that, you know, NASA are facing in terms of circadian rhythms and sending man mission to Mars is we don't follow a 24-hour cycle. Mm -hmm. It gets reset every day. And, you know, you fly, you, and if you fly, you know, um, overseas somewhere, a long flight, and there's a time zone difference, there's a mismatch between your body clock, your internal body clock and the external environment. And, and people, it can knock people around for oh, a couple of weeks sometimes, and they feel you know, lack of energy, concentration and memory problems, um, a bit grumpy and irritable, and that's just from changing time zones. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of simple, you know, ones there when you think about it. If our whole early environment was around, well, you're going to die early and now you're not, or you weren't going to die early and now you are, how's that going to affect our psyche? How's that going to affect our psychological systems? You know, we're perceiving the environment to be one way, and that's all of, our, all of the way that we've grown and prepared ourselves to adapt to that environment because, you know, there is plasticity. And all of a sudden, the rug's pulled out from under our feet and it's not like it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So at a, certain, at a certain point there, you referred to the fact that uh, we have individual variation. And I guess that another very important aspect to explore here uh, has to do with personality because I, I mean people with different personalities deal with the same information in different ways so in the clinical context what is the importance of us having a measurement of personality and i mean do you use uh, personality inventories like for example the big five in your practice uh, and what is the relevance of it? And, and do you use really the questionnaires or do you try to uh, have a look at it by evaluating how the patient uh, behaves and what he thinks? Uh, how, how exactly does that go? Um, I think it, it depends on kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So. Um... If I was interested in personality, I'd be using one of the, the clinical inventories um, like the, the, the PAI or the MMPI, the MCMI. So there, there, there's a number of clinical ones that are out there. Um, and that's more if you're looking at kind of personality pathology. From a clinical sense, um, when I would, I'd only do that if uh, there's something that's not kind of working with therapy and you're trying to work out all... There's an individual difference here that's, that's not quite working. Um, apart from that, most people, um, but personality is important to the extent that it's how you engage them in the, in the therapeutic process and the extent to which you're kind of getting them to do things. So someone higher in levels of extroversion probably isn't going to present with um, a social anxiety disorder. Uh, so, and someone who's higher levels of neuroticism may very well present with uh, an anxiety disorder. Uh, and you, you kind of, that's sitting in the background. Um, 
but it's not something you necessarily kind of work with unless it's at the real kind of pathological end. So narcissism is kind of, you know, when you think about those sorts of that, high levels of narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder, um, they might end up presenting with depression because well, they've got these unrealistic expectations of, of themselves and everybody else, um, and then they can't be met, uh, or it's everybody else's fault, it's never their fault, and then all of a sudden everyone's saying it's their fault and it pushes them into kind of depression, What it's kind of the vulnerable narcissism side of things. Uh, but in trying to answer your question, I wouldn't use the big five, but the personality disorders that the 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 way they're, they're reconceptualizing them in the DSM, they're moving towards kind of traits and facets um, in the appendix of the DSM and trying to measure it on some kind of continuum with the understanding that you can conceptualize it a lot better in terms of levels of individual differences there. Um, it's it's a difficult one. It's, it's a hard one to answer in terms of the personality side of things in clinical. Um, does that kind of answer the question or it's... It's not an easy one to answer, I guess. Yeah, I understand. I was perhaps just asking if really it is common practice to to resort to certain uh, personality inventories like the Big Five that is, I guess, the most prevalent nowadays, at least in pers in personality psychology research, right? And if it really has an important clinical aspect to play or not. It does to some extent. It depends on the populations that you're seeing. So some people will use the neo, um, and uh, or some and they might be dealing a lot with forensic populations or personality disorder populations. So that might be the populations that they're working with specifically. Um, so it really is kind of um, clinical setting content, uh, um, uh, contingent, and uh, uh, the 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 types of presentations and presenting problems that you're dealing with. That would determine the extent to which you use personality inventories. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I would also like to ask you about a very specific topic that is self-esteem and the sociometer theory, because I guess that there are some people that apply this theory to try to explain even things like suicide or what leads people to commit suicide in certain situations where, for example, perhaps from an evolutionary perspective, they might find themselves in a situation where they are not really contributing anything to their family or to their community, and they think that they are useless, and perhaps it would be better for them to just uh, die and to not con consume resources that could be better applied uh, on other people and things like that. So, uh, what do you think about the sociometer theory? What is it really about? And what do you think about its potential to explain things related to self-esteem and more complicated issues of suicide and things like that? Um, I think sociometer theory is, is, a, is a reasonable theory. Um, I mean, it's an evolutionary theory of self-esteem um, and, and the premise is that self-esteem isn't something that you have per se. It's more like a gauge of your level of social acceptance or social rejection. So we have different domains in our life that um, are important for our survival. So our kin relationships, coalitional relationships, mating relationships, 
And we need to have some idea of our level of value or contribution within those relationships. Um, and the idea is that self-esteem is that gauge um, that reflects back our value. So, you know, if you think mating's the easiest one to kind of think about, you know, people might have an idea in their head that, well, you know, I'm a seven um, and, uh, you know, I, I need to, to try and attract a mate that's, a, that's, a, that's an eight because we're always shooting slightly higher. Uh, and then people start getting rejected by all of the eights and go, oh, okay, um, maybe I need to calibrate down and maybe I'm actually, you know, a bit lower, maybe I'm a lot lower. Uh, and so I'm going to start approaching sixes or sevens myself. Um, or maybe you think you're a seven and you start approaching eights and they're going, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, well, maybe I'm a bit more valuable than what that is. And so you get this calibration and up and down in terms of your, your level of mating value. Likewise, we say coalition. Um, you know, you could be a good group member in terms of, you know, providing to the group, um, hunting, fishing, you know, farming, agriculture, whatever it is that the group is about. And if you're worth, if you're underselling yourself, you're not going to be getting a good deal for yourself. So it's a kind of a, a fitness maximizing idea is, you know, everybody needs to know where they are so you can focus your resources in the area that you're good at. Um, you know, if you think about coalitions, and, and you might be the worst person at fishing, but you're great at stalking and hunting. You're not going to invest your energy in fishing, but you need a you need a mechanism to work out. So you know yourself as your fishing self-esteem, for example, you need a mechanism to kind of filter back from your environment your degree of value in that in that particular domain. You know, um, and that that's where sociometry theory kind of explains that there's this constant feedback from the environment in terms of our, our self-worth um, on those different concepts that make up ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's useful from that kind of perspective. Uh, and, and you see that play out, you know, with in, in, in the environment. It's, it, well, I think it makes sense. Um, and that was, you know, this, some of my early research was, was looking at it from a, a mating perspective. And sure enough, people get rejected in an experimental condition and they um, decrease their perceptions of their, their mate value um, and their compatibility, and they get accepted, and they increase their perceptions of, of, of mate value and compatibility. Uh, and so from that perspective, I think it's a really useful way of thinking about self-esteem. And, and we know that you know, there's lots of research. I mean, self-esteem is probably one of the most written about topics in psychology. I mean, <laughs> you know, over 100 years worth of, of people writing about it and having opinions. Um, but what we do know is that yeah, chronically low self-esteem is associated with mental health problems like depression, but people can still have lower self-esteem um, and manage their lives quite functionally well. Um, and there's dangers of things like high self-esteem. I mean, you know, narcissism, for example, um, is, is a, you know, at the extreme end, it's grandiose, inflated sense of self. Um, and it might be nice for some narcissists to be able to take some um, some feedback and calibrate down a little bit to realise that actually they're not as good as what they think they are. Um, so there's dangers to that. And then there's the idea of it kind of artificially boosting self-esteem. So there's a bunch of research back in the 80s and 90s where you know, they looked at kids who um, had been, it seemed like everybody gets a gold medal for participation because we want them to feel good. 
and end up what what ends up happening is that those kids actually do worse because they think they're doing better than what they actually are. So what's the point in trying? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's that kind of idea with the sociologists. Mean, in terms of mental health, um, I would think that you know self-esteem is associated with things like depression um, and, and and suicide. I would say that at some point there might be a miscalibration or that adjustment stuff's not quite working. So, um, you know, their perceptions of their value may not be as chronically low as what they think they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they'll be put in a situation where it's not an accurate amount of feedback. Uh, okay, so what are your thoughts on the fact that perhaps nowadays in what we call the Western society, we are perhaps focusing too much on happiness on and on the need of people think, feeling good about themselves all the time? Because I guess that at least uh, some people, uh, when they are exposed to that idea, let's say, uh, and they go through some phases or some situations in their lives where they feel a bit down and where they feel sad and not good uh, not good about themselves perhaps that would in some way have a negative effect on them because they might think that uh, there would be something wrong with them for not feeling happy and uplifted all the time so um yeah i mean Happiness is, is I mean, it's great to feel happy, but we can't be happy all the time. I mean, we have a whole range of emotional experiences. Um, I mean, feeling sad and upset about having lost a loved one or, or a close friend or, or a long-term pet, it's, it's a normal experience. You know, there's, we have a range of different emotions that, that have evolved over the years that, that allow us to communicate at what's going on, um, how we, you know, emotions are kind of social communication tools. They help us bond, um, they help us communicate in, in, in various ways, and they help us keep us alive and, and, and together. Um, and just in the pursuit of happiness constantly is going to be dangerous. You know, think about, you know, Shakespeare, you know, better to have loved than lost and never um, loved at all. But in order to actually have experienced that loss, you had to experience love. So the, 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 the contrasting aspects there, um, if you're always trying to be happy, you're setting up really high expectations for yourself that may never be achieved. And then what's your definition of happy? What are you trying to constantly pursue? And it's one of those things where I think it ends up being a bit dangerous where people only want to experience that positive emotion um, at the expense of some of the other ones that are a bit more negative, but it's actually the negative ones that keeps us alive. So if you're a little bit anxious in a situation, walking through a dark alley at night, it's pretty good because it'll keep you alive. You don't want to just be happy doing that. Um, you know, it's normal to feel sad when you've had loss. Um, it, it's it's okay to feel disgusted about something that's that's hasn't that that's happened that's not nice. You know, something bad's happened to a friend or a family member, um, or the way people have been treated. It's okay to feel angry. I mean, without appropriate anger, we wouldn't get changes in politicians. We wouldn't get um, changes in things like same-sex marriage. We wouldn't get changes in equality for um, you know, uh, 
the women for equal pay and bit of work out of the house and that came from anger. I mean, they're all kind of normal emotions that we experience. Um, and if you just after the pursuit of happiness, it's pe- people are going to end up getting themselves upset in the end because they're pursuing just one aspect of their, their emotional experience and they may never achieve it. They're setting themselves up. It's those expectations that I spoke about before, you know, really high expectations. Um, it's, it's just not possible. It's not achievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, as you said, negative emotion can also motivate us to change our own lives if they are not that good. Because I mean, if I if I'm on a messy situation and I feel happy about it, perhaps I will keep doing what I'm doing and won't change anything. And eventually, yeah. and eventually, with time. Uh, everything will collapse and then it's when I will feel when I will feel really bad but if I have experienced in some way negative emotion uh, sooner perhaps I could have done something about it yeah and, and that, that comes back to the stuff with sociometry theory and self-esteem too I mean you get feedback you know when, when you have a, a hit in your self-esteem it's kind of a bit, little bit of a drop it's a negative emotion, but it's it's corrective action. So maybe you are you know not treating people so well. You're quite happy, but you're not treating people so well, and you get feedback, and you go, oh, it's not so good. So that, that little bit of negative emotion is going to correct things, and then you can be happy again. But you can't just be constantly happy. And and an absence of happiness isn't sadness. And this this is I mean, sad and happy are two different emotions, but. It seems to be some conflation of the two sometimes where um, if you're not happy, you must be sad. But it's also ha- it's possible to be happy and sad at the same time. You know, um, you could be really sad that um, someone has passed away, but you could be happy that they're not suffering from a chronic illness like cancer anymore. Um, so it's, it's one of those, you, know, you could be really happy that your, your child has grown up and is now an adult and is leaving the home because you don't want to have them around the house anymore, but you're really sad that they're kind of leaving the home. So, you know, it's, it's possible to experience both of those things, but I think people think, well, non-happiness is sadness, but and you can just be sitting in the middle, you can be neutral, you can be okay, and that's, that's okay as well. Yeah, uh, that, that neutral part, I think it's very important, because I guess that most of the time in our lives, we are not particularly happy and not particularly sad. I mean, we're just in a normal state, yeah. let's say. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just explore one last topic, and you've already referred at least to some of these traits during the interview, that is the, the dark triad traits of human personality, I think we could yeah. call them. Uh, that are Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. I mean, why do you do we group them together and call them the dark triad, uh, and why are they important? Um, I think why do we group them together? Uh, well, a couple of researchers about 15 years ago thought they might group together and they clustered together. And sure enough, they did. I mean, there seems to be enough of an overlap between those traits where um, they kind of callous disregard for other people um, and being self-entitled and self-important. 
And in order to do, you know, to be callous and manipulative, they, they kind of go together. There are also distinct traits in the fact that some of the stuff doesn't overlap. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of research around this idea that it's kind of this dark core. So there is an overlapping part of it with some sort of shared variants in terms of those personality traits, but they also have their own unique aspects as well. Uh, and, and some people have, have thought that perhaps they're different expressions of the same underlying kind of dark core. So depending on the environment um, and what gets reinforced, um, you might have higher levels of psychopathy versus higher levels of, say, narcissism. Um, or say high levels of Machiavellianism because you, you uh, had an environment where you've been able to learn to manipulate people where you know, it's okay or to, where you can get away with the idea that the, um, the end justifies the means. Um, whereas in another environment, it might, you might be reinforced for saying that you're the best and claiming that you're the best, so you might develop higher levels of narcissism. Um, they do all tend to cluster together though. I think they're, they're important to the extent that um, all personality traits and variables are important. I mean, uh, we have personality, or from an evolutionary perspective, personality allows us to get our needs met and fulfill a niche. So, you know, we're all different people. Um, if we all had the same strategy for getting mates and forming friendships and developing different things, then we're we're not going to get what we need. I mean, you know, from evolutionary theories, it's kind of interspecies. So yeah, within species, you know, variation is the stuff that allows us to survive. We're competing with each other for the same resources. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we, we compete with other species to some extent, but if we all had the same way of approaching things, it's not going to work. Um, and that's where you see, you know, even within other species, there's, they've come across the big five. You know, so there's the feline five now, um, where they've got you know five personality traits, and uh, great apes have the big five personality traits. And I, I believe someone was doing some research recently looking at, um, I think it was dolphins and personality. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I, I think the the dark triad is just as important as any of the other personality traits, and, and trying to understand how they get needs met in specific environments. Um, I, I do wonder, and, and I've got colleagues that, that kind of think the same, that maybe these are more of a kind of a 20th century personality style because if you go back far enough in history, it'd be really hard to be a psychopath and stay in a small band of people of 50 to 100 because you're not going to be conducive to keeping the rest of them alive. Uh, and saying that, though, if you're going to war, it's probably not a bad idea to have a psychopath next to you when you're going into battle because they're going to be doing the stuff that no one else wants to do. At the end of the battle, though, you may not want to keep them next to you because they'll keep on going and, you know, you won't, you won't survive. Um, likewise, you know, high levels of Machiavellianism, to some extent, would, would be beneficial in different environments. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, they're useful... Uh, to that kind of extent, um, but going back to what my colleagues kind of think around it being part of a 20th century kind of thing, it's easier to have those in larger populations in larger cities. You know, you can burn out your relationships with high levels of the dark triad and then just go to another group 
when you're living in a city with I don't know five million people or ten million people, you can just kind of lurch in the shadows and just go from one group to another group and burn people out and manipulate people and not have empathy. And there's no recourse, or there's not the same degree of recourse. There's there's higher levels of anonymity um, in larger populations. Um, so and then because personality is a heritable factor, there's a good chance that, you know, um, if they do have relationships and have kids, um, they're passing on those traits to some extent as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so would you like to comment on a recent paper that was published by Scott Barry Kaufman? Because he refers to both the dark triad of personality, but also the light triad yeah. that I think was more, more recently found or discovered. Uh, and the traits are uh, Kantianism, that is defined as treating people as ends unto themselves, not mere means. Humanism, yeah. that is valuing the dignity and worth of each individual. And faith in humanity, believing in the fundamental goodness of humans. So, I, I mean, it seems that we also have these other three aspects of personality that also cluster together. And I'm not sure if there's some sort of interplay between the dark triad and the light triad. So uh, what would you like to say about that? Um, I think it's an interesting paper. I actually only read it this afternoon in preparation for today. <laughs> I had it flagged in my inbox as something that motivated me to read it. Um, I mean, even within the paper themselves, they say that they're not the exact opposite. Either. I mean, they, they tried, I think, the Kantianism um, you know, treating people as an end unto themselves, not mere means, was was theoretically supposed to be the opposite of Machiavellianism, um, where you know the, the the end justifies the means. Uh, I think in the in the paper itself, they they found that these things aren't necessarily opposites. Mm -hmm. um, they're not inverses of so the light the light triad is not the inverse of the dark triad, uh, and they were you know, making kind of, some of their findings around things like the degree of agreeableness. Um, and so there were other other factors, you know, personality facets that were involved with that. Um, one of the things that struck me, and I know they didn't necessarily, they didn't actually look at life history strategies, but they did measure child hard, you know, hardship. Um, and I was wondering whether the light triad would be associated with more of a slow life history strategy, given that we know that the dark triad is often associated with a faster strategy. Um, and it kind of makes sense too, if you think about life history strategies and building relationships, um, you know, you invest in longer relationships, you, you look after those relationships, and that that seems to be the core of part of the, uh, the, the light triad, it's like treating people with respect and maintaining those relationships and looking after those. Um, so I, I think it's, a, it's an interesting idea um, and I'd like to see where it's going to go in terms of research. I mean, they've only just created that scale, so I can imagine there's going to be a lot of people running around now going, and going right, I'm going to measure the light triad in my next lot of research. So the dark triad had its go, I think, you know, over the last, it kind of hit its peak about five years ago. I think we're going to see some light triad research coming out now, so I think it'll be interesting. Mm 
Yeah, I'm also very interested in that, and I will be I will be leaving a link to the article in the description box of the interview for people to go and check it out. And so, Dr. Kevin, let's end the interview here. But just before we go, would you like to tell people what would be some of the best places on the internet for them to find your work? Uh, I think Google Scholar is probably the easiest. I mean, I've got a Google Scholar account. Um, I have ResearchGate and Academia.edu as well. Um, the basic kind of academic, nerdy social media platforms that researchers use. Um, and you know, if anyone ever wants to contact me, you can find my email addresses are pretty easy to find on, on those forums as well. Um, yeah, it's probably the easiest way to find me. Uh, any social media or? Um, I do have a Twitter handle um, at Dr. Phil. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's actually, I think it's actually at Dr. Phil K. Um, but again, and, and that's that that Twitter is, is posted on. Um, I think I've got that on uh, academia.edu. I've got ResearchGate and, and um, Researcher ID. All the all the, the normal ones are all linked and uh, linked in together, and LinkedIn as well. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not hard to find if you search. Doc, if you search Phil Kavanagh Psychology or Phil Kavanagh Clinical Psychology, you will find me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I will include all of that in the description box of the interview. And Dr. Kavanagh, thank you again for taking the time to be here with us, and it was really a pleasure. Great, thank you. Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics from a variety of fields. So just to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you can also do it via PayPal and Subscribestar. Yeah, all of the links will be in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my Patreons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Eninen, and my first producer, Isar Weber. Thank you for all.